Author Annie Dillard, in her work Teaching a Stone to Talk, writes this about um, worship services. She says, Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. We don't really think very often of how big God is and how powerful God is and what claim God has on our lives. But God does. And the transfiguration, which we're looking at today, is a moment in which three of the disciples were able to see the power and glory of God, a glimpse of the power and glory of God that then changed them and made them more able to face the days ahead. And as we look at it, my prayer for us is that we will be strengthened to face the days ahead, ahead with a realistic view of who God is. This comes right after Peter says, yes, you are the Messiah, but then takes Jesus aside and says, no, you can't suffer. So we are continuing to um, learn as Jesus teaches the disciples what being Jesus for him truly was and what it means for us to follow after Jesus. And this season of Lent was put on the church calendar very deliberately because the early church knew how easy it is for us to become complacent, for us to make God smaller and smaller and smaller until God is manageable. But that God is a God of our own imaginations, which doesn't actually exist. God is God, and God reveals God's self as God chooses to do. And we are therefore then called to relate to the real God. So during Lent, we try to put aside the complacency, try to put aside all the things that have trapped us through the year into believing that they will bring ultimate contentment or whatever it might be. All the thoughts that go against God's word and to discipline ourselves to get back into uh, a true understanding of who God is. And part of that means to understand how big God is. The passage used in nearly every Ash Wednesday service comes from Joel, and it speaks of a, a, a horde of locusts that comes through and destroys everything in its path. And it says that horde of locusts is the judgment and wrath of God. So therefore, the people are called to repent. We have a similar passage in Habakkuk chapter 3. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the holy 
One from Mount Paran, his glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed but he marches on forever. God, my friends, is big, and God has every reason to reclaim the earth, the universe that he created, and when he reclaims this universe, when he reclaims this earth, when he reclaims humanity, where will we find ourselves? The disciples needed to be reminded and strengthened. So Jesus took them up to a mountain. And this is a pattern repeated through the Bible. Moses went to a high mountain to meet the Lord. Elijah met the Lord on a mountain. So, and, and this happens throughout scripture, but Jesus takes the disciples away from the normal day-to-day -day life, away from all the distractions, and takes them to a mountain so that they can see something that they need to see in order to understand who he is and what he is about. And up there, Jesus changed. Now, we don't think Jesus changed in that he became something different than he was, but in changing, in the light shining through him, in the brilliance that he displayed, he actually revealed who he actually was as the Son of God. And with him, also glorious in their appearance, were Moses and Elijah. And I think it's very um intentional on God's part, as is everything, <laughs> uh, that Moses and Elijah were the ones that were there. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And it, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And if we think about it, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law in that he is perfectly obedient to the law. And then in his perfect obedience, he fulfills the law so that we, as we stand before God, no longer have the law blocking our relationship with God. And the prophets tell us of God's glory. The prophets tell us of God's kingdom, of the promise of an eternal kingdom in which all will be made right. Now, if you have the law fulfilled, but no promise of eternity, you don't have an ultimate hope, even though you're forgiven. If you have the promise of eternity, but the law has not been fulfilled for you, you have no connection with that promise of eternity except that of judgment. So with Moses and Elijah both standing there with Jesus, we see that Jesus, and they're both subservient to Jesus, it's very clear that Jesus is in charge, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the promise he brings the promise to fruition of eternity with God in God's glorious kingdom. And as the disciples were there, seeing this, this uh, transfigured Christ and transfigured uh, Elijah and Moses sharing in the glory of God, they beheld the glory of God, what did they do? They fell to the ground. 
throughout Scripture. It is said that you cannot look at the face of God. You cannot look at the glory of God. And these three were closer than anyone had gotten before. Paul, on the road to Damascus, sees the glory of God and falls off his horse and falls to the ground. These three fall to the ground overwhelmed. God is indeed overwhelming. Whether we acknowledge that or not, it is very important, therefore, for us to step back from our domesticated views of God and remember that God is big, that God is powerful, that God is righteous, and we are not. People say, well, God shouldn't act like that. He should be nice. He should welcome everybody. But that is not, that is not who God is. It's like uh, saying, well, the sun shouldn't burn my eyes when I stare at it for five minutes. Well, what you want and what is true are two different things. And it's far better to live according to what is true rather than what you want. To be walking along and seeing an elephant falling from the sky and say, well, I don't want that elephant to crush me but not get out of its way. It's foolishness to stand before a living God who radiates glory and holiness and not say, you know, it's up to God to judge me, not me to judge God. To not realize that is foolishness. To say, well, I can decide what God is. I can decide how I want God to be is utter foolishness. And the disciples needed to see who God actually was. And what does God say to them? <laughs> They've fallen to the ground. Peter has said, well, maybe we should put up tents. And God just interrupts him and says, this is my beloved son. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the word listen is really in the Greek Overlisten or superlisten or hyperlisten, which means listen, truly listen, allow the truth to enter into your mind and your heart, and then do what it says. Listen and obey. Listen to the voice of God. We have so many voices in our world today, so many of them claiming to be true and right and the only right way to think. And yet another voice says exact the, exactly the opposite and says that it is true and right and the only way to think. And I love the verses of or the prayer uh, before we read scripture in the Presbyterian wedding ceremony, which says, God, speak your eternal word amidst the voice, amidst the changing voices of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. It is up to us to know God's word. So many people think they know God's word. They know little pieces and snippets, but they don't truly um, allow themselves to sit under the whole counsel of the word of God and be humble and be humbled by the word of God. It is vital for us if we are going to truly follow after Jesus Christ, if we're going to truly have a relationship with God, it is vital, as God tells the disciples here, that we listen. <laughs> and poor Peter is basically told, stop talking. 
<laughs> Stop trying to make sense of this on your own. Peter's intentions were good, probably, but it was not his place and it was not his time to talk. And God says, listen to him, my beloved son. In John 1, uh, John describes Jesus as the Logos, the Word. In the beginning was the Word. So the Word that Jesus carries is the Word of God. So we should listen. Um, in Deuteronomy 18.15, we have a um, prophecy about Jesus, which says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking, from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see his great fire any more, or we will die. They were overwhelmed with the voice of God and with the acknowledgement of the holiness of God. So God allows them a break, gives them a break from hearing his word. But these three disciples are given another reminder, listen to the word. We need to know who Jesus truly is so that we can prepare for what is next. Jesus, in this section, beginning in the middle of chapter 16 of Matthew, is preparing the disciples for his suffering and death and ultimate resurrection. And they need to understand what this all means, or they won't approach all, they won't be able to bear up under the challenges that are before them. And they didn't bear up perfectly as it was. We can only imagine how much worse it would have been had they not seen this clear revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. So back to Deuteronomy 18. The people couldn't bear the voice of God anymore. They couldn't bear the glory of God anymore because God's glory is overwhelming. God's glory is like a hurricane, a tsunami. We cannot bear up under it. The transfiguration shows this, this glorified Christ and Moses and Elijah show that God is holy, righteous, and powerful. And the, the scriptures tell us that God will come to judge all and leave devastation in his wake. God is not to be trifled with. But he does this to make everything right. If he didn't, then disease and racism and hatred and war and death and all those things which characterize, negatively characterize life on earth would continue. But this mess needs to be cleaned up. N.T. Wright says, in Jesus Christ, the hurricane becomes human. And this is my favorite part of this passage in verse 7. Jesus came as they were lying on the ground, overwhelmed by the glory of God. Jesus came and touched them. 
Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. The one who bears the glory of God came over to them and with a human hand touched them, grabbed them and lifted them up and said, be raised up. It reminds me of the image of Peter walking on the water and sinking and Jesus reaches out his hand and raises him up. Or the words from my favorite Psalm, Psalm 73, which says, God holds us by our right hand. The hand of Jesus holds ours and lifts us up. In this, in this verse 7, it says, um, rise up, it means be raised. And we have an image then, I think, of the resurrection. Jesus says, I will raise you up. So as we have looked at the, the, the power and the glory of God, the overwhelming majesty of God, we can be overwhelmed and should be. But then we have Jesus Christ. And John Calvin puts it this way. He says, all thinking of God apart from Christ is a bottomless abyss which utterly swallows up all our senses. And if it's not, it should be. But in Christ, God, so to speak, makes himself little in order to lower himself to our capacity and Christ alone calms our consciences that they may dare intimately approach God. Ah, the glory of that thought. Because Jesus Christ humbled himself, we can enter the glory of God because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf in doing what it took for our sins to be forgiven, doing what it took for us to enter into the presence of God with confidence. And then God shares his glory with us, like Moses and Elijah, according to the other gospel account, were, were glowing just like Jesus. We will also glow with the glory of God in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus walks them down the mountain and tells them not to tell what they saw because people just won't get it until after he rises from the dead. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, we read this, And we all, who, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When we have entered into relationship with Christ, we continually grow into Christ-likeness, we grow into the glory of God. It doesn't happen immediately, and it sometimes isn't, sadly, very evident, but this is the promise of God. But that happens in the midst of this sinful and broken world. Jesus walks down the mountain with them and says, you've seen something, something glorious Part of the reason they saw that glory is so that they could be prepared for the struggle and suffering which was to come. In the Chronicles of Narnia series, there is a quote from Aslan to the children. Aslan says, Here on the mountain I have spoken to you clearly. 
I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it, is not, that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. This is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearance. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. Friends, know the signs. Believe the signs. Believe the word of God. Hold on to any of those moments that you have had in your life when God's kingdom seems more real than normal and remember them, remind yourselves of them, seek them. Now, not to the point where you're seeking them for their own sake so that you feel better, but seek them in order to have a deeper sense of God's presence. But we have all we need in the word of God to believe. God's word is true, especially during Lent, but all through the year. Let us covenant to know the word better. Because we need a vision of God's glory. We need confidence in God's grace and the assurance of God's presence to make it through. And God's word gives us all of those things. Trust in him. Acknowledge how big and glorious and unapproachable God is and then approach him confidently because of what Jesus Christ has done for you.